You're listening to Soundbites, a podcast by the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra to share, inspire, and empower our classical music community here in Northwest Arkansas and beyond. My name is Erjing Kong, your host for the podcast and concertmaster of APO. Today's episode discusses ballet music through some of the beloved classics of Tchaikovsky, guided by Weiwei Tan. Weiwei is an active performer working as a professional violist throughout the UK, and her range of experience has accumulated into a portfolio career. Throughout the course of her career, she has performed in orchestral, chamber, and solo concerts in numerous parts of the world, and in concert venues including the Royal Opera House, Wigmore Hall, and Carnegie Hall. Weiwei has a strong interest in ballet as an art form and has performed the music to every major ballet work in the classical repertory. Weiwei, thank you so much for your time to speak on this podcast. Can you start by giving us a quick overview of your bio as a ballet musician? So my love affair with ballet began when I started dancing age five. And to this day, I still train in ballet and I do it weekly, three times weekly. And it's something that I find very essential part of my growth as a human being and as a musician. And I feel it really enriches everything which I do. As a musician, I have actually performed the music to every major ballet work in the classical repertory. Ballet music is very essential to the dance process. As I often say, people would buy a ticket to go watch music without dance, but I don't think people would buy a ticket to watch dance without music. Because without music, dance just looks like throwing shapes on stage and would really lack the context to exist. So much as we really admire the dancers on stage, we mustn't forget that actually it's the music that's holding the entire dance together. Absolutely. And what is the history of ballet music? So up to the latter half of the 19th century, ballet music was written by specialist composers, such as Ludwig Minkus and Cesare Puni. And these composers only specialized in writing dance music and nothing else. So composers who composed for symphonies or chamber music, they would not dream of writing for ballet. However, this really changed when Tchaikovsky decided to join the game. Tchaikovsky was the first ever symphonic composer to write ballet music. And his first effort was Swan Lake and it was written for the Bolshoi Theater. However, contrary to popular belief, it's actually not well received during its time. I think in terms of structure, people found the story to be confusing. And also in previous manifestations of ballet music, ballet music served a very secondary role to the dance. And then here comes Swan Lake, which the music really drove the narrative of the story. And in terms of the dancing itself, if you listen to the music, even the theme tune of Swan Lake, it's um, 
syncopated rhythms, for example, things were off the beat. So the dancers didn't take well to dancing to that kind of music. They were not used to it. They were used to being like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So I think that a lot of um, there were a lot of contributing factors. It's, it's like you know when you introduce something new, a new thing, people don't take to it immediately. So not just Swan Lake, but a lot of very popular ballets that we know of today, they were not big hits during its time. Swan Lake was one of them. Nutcracker was another. It wasn't well received. Um, and very famously was Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, where people actually booed and walked out of the Paris Opera when it was first premiered. Now, Weiwei had previously mentioned the confusing storyline of Swan Lake, so let me take a moment just to provide a bit of context. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake tells the story of the doomed love between Prince Siegfried and Princess Odette. Prince Siegfried goes out hunting one night and chases a group of swans, and is of course surprised to see that one of them is transformed into a young woman, Odette, who then explains that she and her companions were turned into swans by the evil sorcerer, von Rothbart. The spell can only be broken if someone who has never loved before swears an oath of undying love and promises to marry her. The prince declares his love to Odette and promises to be loyal to her forever. At a grand reception of the palace, the prince must choose a bride, but he can only think of Odette. Suddenly, a fanfare announces the arrival of two guests, and it's Odette. The prince dances with her and asks for her hand in marriage. Tragically, and in reality, it is not Odette. The mysterious woman is actually the daughter of the evil sorcerer, Odile. Odette has witnessed the whole scene. Too late, Siegfried realizes his mistake. Siegfried follows Odette to the lake and begs for her forgiveness. She says she forgives him, but nothing can change the fact that he has broken his vow. They decide to die together. The lovers throw themselves into the lake. This is the original storyline. Since Tchaikovsky's time, there have been several different alternative endings all different variations that build to a happy ending, allowing for Odette and Siegfried to marry. Of all the classical ballets, Swan Lake has received the most blunt reworking by the former Soviet Union, where Swan Lake was not simply a beloved ballet, but one that took on enormous political symbolism with long-standing links to the military. There was enormous pressure from the state to modify the psychological investigation of Siegfried's descent into madness and his doomed love in favor of a happy ending, which is still performed today. Even most recently, Swan Lake has been taken up as a means of protesting Russia's incursions into Ukrainian territory, continuing Swan Lake's history of political symbolism. Let's hear a bit of Prince Siegfried and the White Swans, Pas de Deux, where they dance their love duet in Act Two.
Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Sleeping Beauty. So Tchaikovsky was not put off by his lack of success with Swan Lake, and he actually took on with great enthusiasm his next ballet project, Sleeping Beauty. He actually considered this ballet to be one of his finest works, and he was actually very, very proud of his achievements. Sleeping Beauty is one of the longest ballets ever written. It's about four hours long. Can you talk a bit about its structure? and how it's changed over the years. So, yes, you're right. It used to be four hours long. And these days, you know, for attention spans and just to make it a lot more danceable for everyone, most companies trim it down to about a three-hour-long version. So even though the ballet is three acts long, the actual story of Sleeping Beauty itself ends in act two. Act three comprises of many little dances where lots of different fairy tale characters who don't appear in the actual story of Sleeping Beauty, they kind of make cameo appearances. So these include like um, Puss in Boots, Little Red Riding Hood, Bluebird, and Cinderella. And what happens is these characters, they form part of the guest list who attend Sleeping Beauty's wedding party in Act 3. So you were speaking earlier about how with Sleeping Beauty it being four hours long in its original form that most companies for logistical and practical reasons will now trim it down to three. Can you speak a little bit about the process of putting on a production uh, from both the musician's perspective and also the dancer's rehearsal process? So whenever I get the call sheet and I find out that I would be playing Sleeping Beauty this season, one of the first things I do is I book appointments with my massage therapist and my chiropractor. And this is absolutely essential for keeping my physicality in check because um, for like a ballet like Sleeping Beauty, it's three hours of basically non-stop playing. And we're doing between eight to 10 calls a week. 
that can be very, very hard on one's body. A lot of people don't realize, as dancers, you don't dance all the time during a ballet. You come on stage, you do a little number, you go off, maybe you wait 20 minutes, and then you come on and do your little bit again. So there is a lot of downtime. However, as a musician, you're always on. The music has to be continuous because without the music, it's only going to be silence. So the general rehearsal process would take place around six weeks before the very first show, where the dancers will start to rehearse their bits, and this will be done in the dance studio along with a ballet pianist, who then plays the outline of the orchestral music. One week prior to the first performance, the orchestra will rehearse the music with the conductor, and that is when we will meet for the first time. So, if the conductor's job is really, really important in ballet, the conductor is very often, you know, the one that has to hold everything together, because he is the one who is visually aware of everything that's going on on stage and in the orchestra pit. The dancers don't necessarily. See the conductor as they're dancing. What they're looking at is a small screen of the conductor conducting. It's a small TV screen at the very back of the auditorium. When we're in the orchestra pit, we can't see the dancers, so we rely greatly on the conductor to hold the whole show together, so to speak. The other thing the conductor goes through with the orchestra is to make us aware of how each soloist. And each cast will dance their numbers. So, for example, he would say, "Oh yes, this soloist in cast A, she loves doing an extra two pirouettes at the end of this number. So just hold the pause for a bit longer." Or it could be, "Oh yes, this male soloist, he has such long legs, so his jumps will be a lot higher, and it will take him longer to land. So then we just need to hold the music for a bit longer and make sure we time it." When he lands on his feet, so it's little things like that. And on the night, you know, depending on the dancer's inspiration on stage, we just have to be very, very flexible in the pit to be able to stretch and to contract the music, just to allow them to physically complete these amazing, beautiful dances. So the next thing that happens is two days before the first show, the orchestra and the dancers will get together and rehearse the work in full. This is along with the technical team, and this is known as the technical rehearsal. So what this does is it gives the lighting people the chance to get their lighting choreography in place, and to get the set and production people a chance to get the props, and time all the set changes, and for costume department to time all their costume changes, and you know how long it takes people to run on and off stage. Often they have to change shoes as well, and there is actually a dedicated ballet shoe department. So one day before the show, we will do what is known as a dress rehearsal. So this will be a full run through of the show, including full makeup, full costume, and this is when we invite an audience just to give it a bit of an atmosphere. And then it's finally the opening night. Yes, the one that everyone's waiting for—the opening night. As I say, part of the thing about live performances, you never know what could go wrong, and that's part of the excitement. So Weiwei, I'm sure you've have experiences of playing Nutcracker annually.、Um, can you speak a bit about your experiences of、uh, playing 
a beloved ballet annually. Personally, it's not Christmas until I play my first Nutcracker. That for me marks the official beginning of the festive season. I find that it's a piece with where every tune is literally a hit tune. And plus it's because it's very short. As a, as a musician, we really welcome that. When I first played Nutcracker, I was really surprised at how technically demanding it is. And I think I was under the assumption that, oh, it's, you know, a popular classic and I know all the tunes so well, I've heard them before. It can't be that bad. But when I actually had to perform it, I realized, wow, I have to be really on my toes every single number that I play. And what's nice about revisiting it is that because it's got such um, an enduring quality to the music, I find that it's one of the pieces of music that I never seem to tire. I'm surprised also in the trajectory of Tchaikovsky's compositional history that despite some of these initial flops and initial sort of um, failures to catch success, that he was un undaunted and then went on to write uh, possibly his most popular and well-known ballet, The Nutcracker. Can you walk us through a little bit of the, the storyline? So the Nutcracker is an adaptation of E.T.A. Hoffman's story called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. I'm going to tell you the story in a series of chapters. So the first chapter is the party scene. The ballet is set on Christmas Eve, where friends and family have gathered to admire the beautiful Christmas tree. There's these two children, Clara and Fritz, and Clara and Fritz are dancing with their friends in this party. So while they're dancing and the party's in full swing, the children's godfather, named Drosselmeyer, he arrives with lots of presents for the children. Fritz receives a really nice gift, but he's actually jealous of Clara's gift, which is a wooden nutcracker. Out of spite, Fritz actually breaks the nutcracker. After everyone's gone to bed, Clara then goes out and checks on her broken nutcracker and she cradles her nutcracker in her arms and falls asleep with him. Next chapter, the fight. So when the clock strikes midnight, strange things begin to happen. Clara shrinks while the Christmas tree grows to seven feet tall. The toys come to life and the room is filled with mice, led by the Mouse King. The Nutcracker comes to life and he leads an army full of tin soldiers in a fight against the mice. Eventually, Clara helps the Nutcracker win the fight when she takes off her slipper and she flings it at the Mouse King and she knocks him out cold. Next chapter, The Land of Snow. The Nutcracker turns into a prince and takes Clara on a journey to the land of snow where they're surrounded by dancing snowflakes. And this is the bit where I say I start to tear up every time. Next chapter, The Land of Sweets. The prince and Clara travel to the land of sweets where they're greeted by the sugar plum fairy. Now, this very famous piece of music is of historical interest as it uses the Celesta, which at the time 
was a new instrument discovered in Paris by Tchaikovsky. He felt that the sound really characterized the sweet heavenly nature of the sugar plum fairy. So the prince tells the fairy about their daring battle with the army of mice and she rewards them with a celebration of dances. So this is when there's a series of dances, for example, the Spanish dance, the Arabian dance, the Russian dance, the Chinese dance, the Merleton dance, and the Waltz of the Flowers, which is also a very, very famous tune. At the finale, the Sugar Palm Fairy and the Cavalier danced a beautiful pas de deux. Finally, the last chapter, the dream ends. Clara finally awakens from a dream and finds herself back to being a child again. And her Christmas tree, just back to a normal size. And her beloved Nutcracker by her side. And I guess the question she's asking herself, was it all really just a dream? Do you have any theories or, or do your experiences perhaps inform your ideas about relatability when it comes to presenting ballet to an audience? So one of the things that makes the Nutcracker so relatable is that it's free of religious associations. It's free of theology, like all these traditional religious imagery that go with the idea of Christmas. So whichever 
background you come from, it's a good level playing field. And also what I think is so magical about it is, is it's every child's best dream of Christmas coming to life. So if you recall, you know, as children, we often dream of our toys coming to life and we dream of going on these faraway adventures and we dream of lots of sweets, I'm sure, and snowflakes and all these exotic characters. So imagine all of this and more in a single ballet, which I think is incredible. And, and as I said before, every, every number is a hit tune and it's practically just candy for your senses. And it's no wonder then that for many young children and students, Nutcracker will be often their first experience of a ballet. So I'm sure that also makes it quite memorable. Absolutely. And I think for the children, when they go see Nutcracker, I think what they find inspiring as well is they see a lot of children performing on stage in Nutcracker. So for example, there's children dancing in the initial party scene, and then children often sometimes are the tiny mice, part of the mouse king's army. So there'll be larger mice and there'll be like tiny baby mice fighting along. And the children form part of the children's choir in the snowflakes, the dancing snowflakes. A funny thing is a lot of the musicians' children have gone on to sing in the children's choir whenever it's nutcracker season. So it's very integrated into their often first time experiences of ballet and of music, uh, all tied in also with the festive holiday season. Makes for a very powerful memory, I think. Absolutely. And hopefully for these kids that grow up with Nutcracker being their very first experience, and it's a positive experience, someday they're going to grow up and be the ticket buyers of the future and the audiences of our future. And hopefully they would then bring along their friends and family to enjoy it together and take on this as their kind of family tradition. I think that's a, quite a common outcome. Weiwei, it's been wonderful to see an integrated musician, a wholly integrated musician who understands music both as an abstract form, but also as a very physical and concrete form as well. Thank you so much for your time in sharing this expansive knowledge of ballet music and distilling it to such a short amount of time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me, Eugene. Anytime. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to APO's Soundbites. If you enjoyed the episode, please share and tell your friends. More information about APO can be found on their website, arphil.org, A-R-P-H-I-L.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Please join us again next time for more explorations in the rich world of classical music. <laughs>